Uh, our men's study meets once a month. Uh, we met this morning. And we've been considering this idea as men of core values. It's a really, really important topic. Whether spoken or unspoken or identified or unidentified, the reality is all of us live out of a set of core values that we have developed over the course of our lifetime. Whether that be through experiences or things we've heard from others, we have developed a set of values and we live out of those values. For example, you may not think about it or articulate it. You might not write down your core values, but when you go to purchase a car, your values are reflected, new or used. We're going for utility or we're going for looks. We're going to go in debt or we're not going to go in debt. Vacation is similar. Where do we go? Why do we go there? What we do when we get there? It reflects our values. Conflicts in marriage. Most of those are a conflict of core values. We start talking about core values and as followers of Jesus, people might say, well, but doesn't the Bible define our values? Can't, can't we just go with that? Well, yes, absolutely we should. But which values are core? What values serve as the values that inform the others? So on Friday, I was going to visit somebody and I was driving through Bloomington. In particular, there were two churches with banners out front declaring some of their core values. Nowadays, you see this a lot. Churches putting banners in their yards declaring their values, particularly around cultural issues. This is what we believe. And they would say those are rooted in biblical principles. Are they right? What values are first? Which ones drive how we interact, how we live, how we relate? On Paul's leadership coaching to Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy in both books at the beginning, he reminds Timothy of Timothy's core values. I know you, my son in the faith, and here is what's important to you. Here's what makes your life work. Here's what drives you. And he encourages Timothy to fan those values into flame. Build upon them. Immerse yourself in them. Be strong in them. Don't be distracted from them. This is Paul's coaching to Timothy. Know what your values are. Immerse yourself in them because they will run your life. 
And so we're learning in our men's study that identifying our core values and like Paul's encouragement to Timothy, then immersing ourselves in them and fanning them into flame and being able to articulate them and being strong in them and not being distracted in them is vitally important for men who want to follow Jesus. We should know where we're going and why we're going there. We're not there yet. But we should know where we're going. What is north on our compass? This is true for us as a church as well. As Paul encouraged Timothy, identifying and knowing and shaping our lives around core values is both an identity statement, who we are, and it's an activity statement, what we do. It's both. Or what we aim to do. So over the next several weeks, we're going to take a look at our core values as a church. We talked several months ago as a leadership team, and this is something that we want to regularly keep before us. We not only want them to be embedded in our teaching, these core values are in our membership document. If you sign up and say, hey, I I, want to officially be recognized as part of Vine and Branch Church. These are my peeps. I'm in. Sign me up. These are in that document, and we want to not just sign the document and forget about it, but if they're core values, they should be core values, which means they need to be coming up regularly, and we ought to be immersing ourselves in them. We don't want to just have them something that's written down, but something that's written literally on our lives. So these core values are the bedrock realities that shape who we are, who we're becoming, what we do, what we want to do, and where we're going. Those three values are, if you've got a note section, uh, they're in. if you don't and you want some notes, they're in the back. Our little faithful hander out or one or guy or Abe is uh, on vacation. So if he didn't get notes, he's not here. They're in the back. But on the right up-hand corner, it tells you our three values. The supremacy of Jesus Christ, the authority of God's Word, and redemptive community. Then we're going to take a couple extra weeks and just talk about, okay, those are the three core values. As a leadership team, what responsibilities, how do we want to get after those core values, and then looking at how we're going to do that together as a church. So we're going to be doing that over this next five weeks. And so our first core value is upholding and organizing our thinking and our lives around the supremacy of Christ Jesus. This idea of Him being supreme above everything else, first, the first of all firsts. So we read through uh, some of Colossians. I gave you a little bit of context for the letter. This, by the way, is a letter that was written uh, in many ways to combat some false teaching that was going on in the lives of those in the church of Colossae. And in order to combat false teaching, the thing that Paul does is he exalts and sets up Christ as supreme. And so one of the clear applications for us is to keep Christ exalted as supreme. He is our leader. He is God that keeps us 
from getting off course, from straying. And that's what Paul does with the Colossian believers. But the passage that we opened with, opened with <clears throat> some Bible starting in verse 15, the title is The Preeminence of Christ or The Supremacy of Jesus. And in these passages, Paul makes it plain that Jesus is God and He is over all things. And He literally holds within His character everything together. If He doesn't exist, the universe comes apart, literally. And in this passage, as we read, as we opened... Jesus is called, right in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Let me start with this firstborn idea because it throws many of us off. It can be a little bit confusing because of our modern terminology. It's hard for us to understand firstborn is anything less than a person who didn't exist that now exists. So for some of us, this causes a problem. Matter of fact, there's some false religions that anchor themselves in this very verse and say that Jesus was actually didn't exist and now he does exist. So you can misunderstand this if you don't know. So some people think, well, Jesus didn't exist, now he does. The Father existed, the Son didn't. The Father begat Him. Now the Son exists when He didn't before. But the phrase does not necessarily mean one who was born first. It's actually a statement or a a, a position of authority. It can mean somebody who's born first, but in this case it doesn't. The phrase preceding it is really important in understanding this. So, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's reality that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It means that He is the full and complete embodiment of what it means for God Himself to enter His created world. He is the complete picture of God entering into a place that He created for us in time and space. For us, it might be helpful to put it in our vernacular and say that Jesus was the first one on the scene might be helpful. We've got to remember that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have existed forever outside of time and space. Time and space is for us. It's a part of creation. Before a physical universe existed, the Father, Son, and Spirit did. And so when God goes and decides to create a physical universe... He created and entered into our sphere of existence. And again, He stepped in to His creation of time and 
space. And so he makes his entrance as a firstborn, you with me? Into the universe as the person, Jesus. We see manifestations of Jesus all throughout the Old Testament arriving. They're called theophanies. And Paul says that Jesus is the physical and the perfect embodiment of who God is in flesh. He's the image of the invisible God. And in this manifestation of God's presence, Jesus created the spiritual universe, both things seen and the things that aren't seen. So in verse 16, continuing, Paul says, For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. If you flip over to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, it says the same thing this way. Long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power he holds all things together he upholds the universe he is the exact embodiment of god himself he is the radiance of the glory of god therefore jesus is god manifest in our tangible world he is creator He is not created. And that's why He is supreme, church. That's why we hold Him up and say, whatever you say goes. What you teach us, we will strive to do. He is firmly established in authority and leadership over all things. He's supreme. And we organize everything around Him. He is the first in all things. So Paul continues, verse 17. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head, the body, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. So in this passage, Paul's now taking this thought of Christ being first, and he's running it into everything in the world. He's before all things. All things are held together. He leads the church. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn among the dead. He was resurrected. He conquered death for us. He's the predecessor. He's our older brother who paid the price so that we can go to eternal life following Him. He is the firstborn from the dead. And this passage again continues to develop our understanding of multiple areas in which Christ has supremacy. And first Paul said He's 
before all things. And then he ends this section by saying, so that in everything. It's almost as if Paul is saying, he's supreme. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And he ends the passage that way. He's supreme. He's before all things in verse 17. And then as you get down into verse 18, he says, so that in everything he might have supremacy. And then the rest of this stuff is sandwiched in between. He's supreme over all things. He's supreme over creation. He literally made it all, and He holds it all together. He's supreme over the church. He's our leader. We follow Him. He's our example. He's supreme over death. He was the firstborn from the dead. He conquered death. And He's supreme over ultimate reconciliation. At the end, He will reign. Regardless of your position of eschatology, at the end of the day, in every instance, in every belief, He wins. He will reign supreme. That's how it ends. This thesis, this point of Christ's supremacy is developed as a main theme in the book of Hebrews. What happens in the book of Hebrews is that it explains the work of Jesus in the context of the Old Testament system. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish Old Testament laws. All the laws that the Jews followed for thousands of years come true in Jesus. And if you were with us for our Passover meal around Easter time, it's really easy, it's easier to begin to see how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, and it's the point that the book of Hebrews is making. He literally is the aha moment for all of the Hebrew teaching. When when Paul gets knocked down and goes blind, and he is literally groveling around, wondering what is going on, and he realizes that something has put me to my knees and taken away my vision, and he says, Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Paul has the significant aha moment of his life and all the missing pieces come together for Paul when Jesus utters his name to him. He is the aha moment of the Old Testament. So in Hebrews 8.6, the author says, but the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one and it is founded on better promises. He is the fulfillment of all the covenants of the Old Testament. And so what Hebrews, the book of Hebrews does is it pulls both New Testament and Old Testament together and helps us to see the Old Testament more clearly by exalting Christ in the New Testament. He is the supreme fulfillment and completion of everything. So thus, Hebrews explains that Christ is supreme. 
Whereas Colossians says he's a pr- supreme over everything. In particular, Hebrews says that he is supreme over the law and the human priesthood. This is primarily targeting an education of the Jewish people. Christ is your fulfillment. And what we see in the book of Hebrews is that God is infinite. He lasts forever. And therefore our sin against Him is an infinite offense. And in order to atone for this eternal offense, the sacrifice being made must be an eternal one, not a temporary one. This is why the sacrificial system of the Old Testament didn't work, and we're told that in numerous places in the Old Testament, because it was a temporary that only pointed to the eternal. And a temporary sacrifice cannot make account for an infinite offense. And so we know that obedience to rules and creeds The sacrificial system was never able to correct the problem that mankind has between himself and God. We need an infinite, a supreme sacrifice because our problem with God was infinite and needed an infinite solution. And Jesus as God is infinite. And thus the only sufficient sacrifice for our sins. He's supreme. Where else would we go, Lord? Where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. It's what we sang. It's what we always will sing by God's grace. Hebrews chapter 10, the author says, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices offering and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. And then he added, Behold, this is Jesus, I have come to do your will. He, Jesus, does away with the first order in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But, however, when Christ had offered for a time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's over. He's finished it. He's accomplished it for us. Verse 14 For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So both in Colossians and the book of Hebrews, we see Christ as supreme. He is God in the flesh. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He leads the church by both word and deed. He has conquered death for us, and all things find their ultimate redemption in Him. Philippians says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. Therefore, He is the head of our church. In our elder meetings, we always end our beginning statement when we meet together with this phrase, 
We have one pastor. His name is Jesus. And what we're doing here is about Him and not us. We are going to bring ourselves into submission to that reality every time we meet. And in some form, every time we meet as a church. And so this is why the first of our core values is around Christ and His supremacy. Bob and I were talking about this today as a result of our leadership study and how this relates to our marriages. I've told you this before. One of the hardest things about uh, doing what I do or the things that keeps me up is the, uh, the difficulty of teaching always holding forth something that you can never quite obtain or live up to. And so week after week, speaking things that are true, but I can't catch up with it in my life, and nobody sees that more clearly than my family, and nobody sees it more clearly in my family than my wife. My relationship with Mary is the tempering factor in my theology. It keeps me grounded. It reminds me how much I need the grace of Christ and how far I fall short of His standards. And so grace becomes this amazing, powerful motivation and it also tempers what I do at home. Bob and I were talking about the difference between instructing our wives and leading them. Because we need so much grace, it is more about leadership than it is about instruction. True? It's not that we don't instruct, but you're not doing much instruction if you're not leading. If it's not manifest in your life, you're going to have an awful hard time finding followers. Yay? True? Marriage has more often been likened to our relationship with Christ. And church, I do not want you hear me saying theology is not important. It's very important, and I think we hold to that here. But I will tell you that it is tempered by the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. In other words, as we grow in theology, as we grow in our knowledge of the Bible and understanding, our our ability to follow and love Jesus needs to grow with it. You with me? So it is like a marriage relationship. If our theology is growing but our love for Christ isn't, it's not being manifested in the way we show our love for Him, you with me? Then there's a problem. So theology ought not to be moving way farther ahead than our ability to show, to reveal, Christ, I love you, through our behavior, through the way we think and the values we hold and the way we live. This is why Christ is supreme. This is why we follow Him. Because our relationship with Him tempers us. He says, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't get too big for your own pants. You need Me, and He is there for us. And when we're tempted for our minds to get bigger, than our heads can contain, 
or our lives can contain, we're reminded that what we're doing here is following God in the flesh who exemplified what it looks like to live before Him. And that life always leads us to a great need for grace. You with me? Church, this is why Christ is supreme. This is why we follow Him. In a minute, Ian's going to come to lead us in communion. I want to direct your thoughts to your notes. There's a prayer in there that was captured by A.W. Tozier in the book. I encouraged you to consider the knowledge of the holy. And you can pray out loud with me or read along either one. There's a prayer at the bottom. And I just want to read it for us as we consider application. Our Heavenly Father, let us see Your glory, if it must be from the shelter of the cleft rock and from beneath the protection of Your covering hand. Whatever the cost to us in loss of friends or goods or length of days, let us know You as You are, that we may adore You as we should. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.